Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. And welcome again to Christ Church. My name is Michael, and I have the opportunity today to share some thoughts from Luke chapter 9. So if you want to open your Bibles to there, go ahead. And uh, while you're doing that, just uh, look at the person next to you and just say congratulations real quick. Congratulations. We made it to 2018. Like, it is here, officially. We somehow survived, and the calendar has flipped. And apart from the abrupt colder temperatures, like good riddance, you know what I mean? Like it is over and done with. And I, sometimes at the beginning of the year, I, I, I think about what a year will look like in the long run, and I have no idea what history will think about 2017. I know that it was a strange one for many of us, and I wonder sometimes, is it as uniquely odd as it feels in the moment, or will we just chalk it up uh, to being one more year in the end, just like most of the others? For me, in my line of work, I'm going to remember 2017 as the year when you had to be really careful talking about current events because everything was offensive to someone. You know what I mean? Like what happened was offensive and what was said about what happened was offensive to various people in the room. So I'm just going to stop talking about it because I don't want to offend anybody, you know, right now. And it's not that I'm against offending people, you know, whether you or somebody else, but the uh, story that we're looking at today from the Bible is plenty offensive enough. So I don't want to add anything to what we see in our text today. So Luke chapter nine, uh, let's read it together uh, without any more delay. It is, uh, we're going to read the last part of it, chapter 57 through 62. And what we're picking up here is Jesus. Jesus is kind of along the way. We'll set the context for it a bit later. He's just kind of walking along the road and he has some conversations with some people who are at some level interested in being his follower. We are, if uh, you're just joining us and you're kind of just checking us out or becoming part of the family, we're in a long uh, journey that we're just calling the gospel, where we're looking at the life of Jesus from start to finish. And I mean, it's a great way to start the new year. If you're wondering who we are as a church, we're just a bunch of weirdos who think that the best way to be good at being weirdos is to look closely at Jesus and hang on tight. And so that's what we're doing in this thing. And our, on our journey through the gospel story in chronological form uh, gets us to this point in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus has some conversations with a few people about what it means to follow him. So let's pick it up and just read it. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, he said to Jesus, that is, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Okay, next one. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Everybody say, okay then. (laughs) I mean, this is, there you have it. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes when I read the Bible, I'll try to to think about what it would look like, what it would sound like to somebody who isn't already drinking the Jesus Kool-Aid. And when I do it with a story like this, it's crazy. If some of you in the room are not followers of Jesus, maybe you're here with a family member or a friend or you're just checking it out, uh, if you think, this is crazy, let me just go and acknowledge, it is crazy. Like, this is intense, calling for a level of commitment that is not normal for most of our relationships. You know what I think about when I hear a story like this? I think about, uh, like, super fans. 
You know what I'm talking about? Like people who are, some of different teams have famous fans who are so over the top that everybody knows who they are. Are there any Denver Broncos fans in the room? A few of you? First of all, my condolences. Rough year for you. Um, maybe next year. We'll see. Uh, the, uh, but also, you, if you're a Broncos fan for a while, you probably know who Barrel Man is. Name's Tim. Take a look at this picture. This is Barrel Man, okay? Yeah, he unfortunately passed away in 2009, but for the 30 years before that, he was at every Denver Broncos home game. Keep in mind, they play in the winter. And it is cold in the mountains. <laughs> Every game wearing nothing but a barrel and a cowboy hat. He originally wore this because he bet his brother he would be on TV. And he was, and he just found that this was a great way to show his devotion. I also think about, if you're a basketball person, uh, you may be more familiar with this guy. Uh, this is, the next one's a guy named Clipper Daryl. His name is Daryl. I think his last name is Bailey. He's a Los Angeles Clippers fan. Comes to every game, home game. And you can see he wears this outfit he's made that is equal parts blue and red. These are the Clippers colors. And not only does he come to the game dressed like this and cheer and whoop and go crazy, his car is actually also blue and red, custom designed on the inside. His home, I'm not making this up, is blue and red. I mean, this guy literally bleeds the clipper colors, not literally, but figuratively, everywhere he goes. And I think about this kind of devotion when I think about what Jesus is calling us to. And, um, you know, so what do you say about it, you know? And when I, was, when I found that I was going to be guiding us through this story, I just kind of opened my Bible and I read it a few times and I tried to picture the scene and I did some digging and studying and I read it a few more times and I'm thinking, where do I take this? In a civil conversation in 2018 among adults trying to figure out what it means to take this seriously. Where do we go with this? And so I just, you know, did what most people do. I was like, Jesus, what do you want me to say? And I ask him this every time uh, I have an opportunity to preach or teach. And usually he sort of treats it like a rhetorical question. <laughs> or he'll say something sarcastic like, what, the Bible's not enough? You know, that kind of thing. But this time, I, I, maybe you're going to think I'm crazy now. I kind of think I got an answer. And so I'm like, Jesus, what do you want me to say, right? And I feel like he started to kind of communicate some things. So I just got my pen and I started writing down. Here's what I feel like. I'm, it's not a joke. I think this is what Jesus was saying. First thing I heard was, well, and I heard, you know, I didn't hear with my ear, but kind of in my mind. He said, well, first of all, the question is, what do I want you to hear? And I'm thinking, oh, this is definitely Jesus. Okay, because I would not have made that up. That's what he said first. He says, and what I want you to hear, saying this to me, is the same thing I wanted them to hear back then. That if you want to be a part of my revolution, nothing can stand between us. Nothing can take precedence over me. I'm thinking, I get the point, but then he's like, nothing. I'm like, okay, I get it. I must come first. He said, you may not like this all the time, but it's never going to change. So that's what you need to hear. And he's like, and as for what to say, as always, if you hear it well, then you'll say it fine. So remind people that I have not changed. Remind them that I really did say the things reported in this story and that I really am still saying them. So there you have it. Jesus wasn't playing around then, and he's not playing around now. And if you want to be a part of this thing, then put your hand to the plow and don't look back. And if there was ever a time in the gospel stories when I wish I could hear Jesus' tone of voice, it's in conversations like this. I just wish I knew what is the level of intensity. What it, what, like, what's the look on his face? What's he sound like? What, how is he approaching a conversation like this? Because I used to hear texts like this with this over-the-top intensity and this radical call, and Jesus is yelling in their faces, you got to follow me and be ready to die. And then when I was younger, that's definitely how I would have preached it. You know, it's just this rousing call to discipleship. And that kind of preaching is fine, and there's a place for it, and I'm sure I'll do it again someday, maybe, maybe even in this place, not sure. But lately... In my own journey with Jesus, and this time as I read the text, it feels more appropriate to me to take a measured tone. So I asked for a chair, so I'd stay calm today. 
It feels more appropriate to me that to, to sort of see this less as this rousing call to an emotional resolution and more like, let's just sort of make a calculated, rational decision about whether or not we're going to follow Jesus. That's what I hear from Jesus. A little bit less fire, a little bit more deliberation. He's very intentional and very direct, but I think that he wants to guide us through. He wants us to understand what's at stake and to decide again, that's the goal, to make an adult decision to place Jesus first. I think that the overall point of the text is, is probably pretty clear. Uh, let's kind of think about it together. If I, I'm going to throw this up there. If, think about this sentence. There's a blank in it. It's Jesus demands blank commitment. If you were trying to summarize what we see in this text, how would you fill in the blank? No question he demands commitment, but what, what, what's, what's that blank? There's a lot of right answers to this, I think. Jesus demands blank commitment. I spent some time on this and came up with plenty of answers. Uncomfortable commitment, outrageous commitment, like no delay, no hesitation commitment offensive commitment, like call it what you will. The word I came up with, and you can pick your own, here's mine for the day, Jesus demands radical commitment. And I mean this word in its technical sense. It comes from the word radix, meaning root. In other words, to be radical means to the root, all the way, to the core. No hesitation, to the hilt. Radical, that's the kind of commitment Jesus calls for from us. That's what I see in this text. And the context of this is that Jesus is on mission. He's going somewhere doing something. Notice the way the story began. As Jesus walked along the road, or as they walked along the road, they're going somewhere. And if you look at it in context, he is on mission, and it's a mission that's universal in its invitation. People want to kind of say, no, it's just for the in-group. Jesus is like, no, this is for everybody. Before this happened, John, one of Jesus' close followers, comes up to Jesus, and he's like, hey, I saw some people casting out demons in your name, but I told them to stop because they weren't part of our group. And Jesus is like, you dummy, don't tell them to stop. If people are doing this in my name, then they're on our side. Leave them alone. Oh, sorry, you know. Then Jesus says, okay, it's time for me to go to Jerusalem to die. That's kind of what's going on here. I'm, I'm moving toward Jerusalem because I have an appointment there to die for the sins of the world. And along the way, as they go from north to south in the land of Israel, they have to go through a place called Samaria. And so Jesus sends some of his followers ahead of him and says, go find a place for us to stay. And they go, and nobody wants to house them because they don't like Jerusalem. They don't want him to go down there. And some of the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, since they didn't let us stay in their homes, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? Jesus is like, no, simmer down, boys. Relax, okay? I know you want, like, just me to just rain down fire on everybody who doesn't think just like you think, but you need to understand this invitation is universal. And in the next section after ours, he's going to send people out to go and share this message of the kingdom. So he wants us to understand, Luke does, in reporting these events in this way, that this is an invitation to a kingdom that is available to anyone, anyone. But our text rounds out that picture. It's available to anyone, yet no one's going to get there haphazardly. No one's just going to sort of drift into this thing. Jesus isn't just going around saying, hey, everybody can come. I'm going to take you just as you are, and I'm not going to mess with anything. I just want to make your life a little better. Not a chance. Jesus does not have a New Year's resolution to make my life more comfortable. Yours either. And we've got to wrestle with this. We've got to ask ourselves, if, if my response to the call of Jesus is not making me uncomfortable in any way, if it's not costing me anything, then is it really the call of Jesus that I'm responding to? So again, I, wanna, I want you to 
hear the bothersomely radical demand of this text, and I want you to make an adult decision, a conscious decision, that you, yes, you, not the person you came with, not your parents or your children, not your spouse or your friend, not the person that you think needs to follow Jesus more, you make a conscious decision again here at the beginning of 2018 to be a Jesus person through and through. Before we ask some hard questions of this text, I want to look at the details a bit, so let's drill down. What exactly is Jesus demanding? I just want to kind of add a few thoughts because I think just reading the text a few times is enough. kind of speaks for itself. But let me kind of bracket this out a little bit. And as we walk through it, I'd encourage you to be in self-diagnosis mode. Just asking the simple question, which of these people would I most likely be? Because Jesus essentially looks at all of them and says, I got to be more important. I got to be greater than whatever it is that's most important to them in the moment. First thing is, he says, I got to be greater than your comfort and security. Let's read the text, 57 to 58. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I wonder what prompted this conversation. Notice that Jesus didn't start this one. Jesus didn't go up to him and say, I want you to give up everything you have. No, this person came to Jesus This person came to him and said, I will follow you wherever you go. He was eager. Some people would say he was too eager. I don't know if he was or not. I don't think we know that. I don't want to knock this guy. All I know is that he said the right thing. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus doesn't say, you can't come with me. But he does say, okay, you need to realize what you're asking for. You need to realize what you're getting into. You need to realize that this journey that you're saying you want to take with me is not one that is marked by things like success and comfort and security. It's not the kind of thing that all your little village mates are going to think is awesome. It's not the kind of thing that mommy and dad are going to be super proud of. You're going to be homeless. You're going to be just sort of wandering around with me doing work. And we're going to know where we're sleeping that night when we get there. Like that's the kind of thing I'm calling you to. And this is uncomfortable because we like, I mean, I don't know. I like comfort and security. Don't you? And here's where I'll be completely for real. Like, I get it. Like, I'm not in the long scheme of things. I'm still a fairly young guy. But I reached a certain point. I don't know when it was. I, in the past number, past few years, I reached a certain point where stories like this feel like they fit younger people now to me. I feel like this kind of thing belongs for somebody who's just sort of, I was talking to Ryan in the back, and he was saying, you know what it is for him anyway? And I think it's true for me. The older you get, the more you have to lose. And so comfort isn't just about sitting on a couch and, you know, having a beverage, although that's nice too. It's just like, I... I got people, and I got, I got resources, and I got a lot to lose now, and so Jesus calling me to just sort of let go of all that becomes difficult, but he does. Is Jesus more important to you than comfort? How, how do you know? Can you point to something? Is Jesus more important to you than, than security, than having a home? And I don't know that Jesus is called, I don't think he's calling most of us to abandon our homes, but he's calling us to abandon a certain kind of attachment at the very least. And for some of us, he is calling us to abandon them. And for all of us, he is calling us to recognize that he may later call us to abandon them. How's that? That's what I hear Jesus saying here. And I don't, I, the flesh in me, I don't like it. I don't like pain and I don't like instability. And yet Jesus says, okay, cool, if you want to be a part of where I'm going, you need to understand that you're not going to have all the creature comforts that you're used to. I was talking to a young pastor friend of mine just, just a couple days ago, and he was, he was lamenting the fact that, um, he's not disillusioned, but he was lamenting the fact that he just didn't feel that he was surrounded by people who were super passionate about growing in holiness. 
And it was hard to know exactly what Sammy was a sharp guy, so he didn't necessarily need a whole lot of help. But I was wrestling with and talking with him about the fact that, yeah, kind of every time you add a year to your life, it becomes a little bit harder to just be super deeply committed all in on growing in holiness. Then I thought, how lame is that? Like, what a, what a dumb excuse. Like, how weird is it that because of the way we're wired, sometimes the more we sort of engage in life, we become a little bit less likely to fully commit to Jesus? I don't know. I'm just trying to think out loud with you. I'm just trying to wrestle with what it would mean to take this seriously. Because I do think Jesus calls each of us to take this seriously. Can you still hear his voice? Do you recognize that he would say the same kind of thing to you? If you would say that you're a person who's all in, he would say the same kind of thing to you. I'm convinced of that. I wish I knew the end of this guy's story. I wish I knew if he was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm still in. We don't know. And I think the point is that it's not so much about Jesus' call on his life. It's about Jesus' call on mine. And for you, Jesus' call on yours. Jesus has to be greater than our need for comfort and security. Second thing we see is that Jesus is greater than our responsibilities. This is big for all of us, especially for some of you, given how you're wired. 59 and 60, he said to another man, follow me. So Jesus initiates here. The guy's close. He says, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me, let me first go and bury my dad, my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. A little, little background may help here. Um, there's a couple of options of what's going on. It could be that the father's still alive and the, man, and the young man's saying, hey, Jesus, let me like take care of my family responsibilities. My dad is older. He's gonna die soon. Let me like take care of him and then I'll follow you. He's asking for a delay. And Jesus is like, nope, not gonna happen. More likely, it's not that like dad died yesterday and I need to bury him today or tomorrow. More likely what's going on has to do with their burial customs. So when somebody would die, you would embalm them, put them in a tomb and you would leave them in there for a year. And it's kind of gross when the flesh would decay and all that kind of stuff. And then you come back a year later, you'd take the bones, you'd put them in an ossuary box, and then you would place it in the part of the tomb where it will sit forever. It's likely that this guy is somewhere in that year span. My dad's dead, like we buried him, but like wait for the time when I can fully take care of my responsibilities and then I'll come follow you. Either way, whatever's going on, the guy asks for time and it's not a bad request. Taking care of your family is kind of a big deal, especially in a culture like the Jewish culture that has the Ten Commandments, one of which is honor your father and mother. And one of a son's greatest responsibilities in that culture was the burial of his father. If you neglect this, if you neglect this, then you will be regarded as distasteful and not exactly someone people want their kids to be like. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury the dead. Now, the rabbis would say, burying your father is more important than anything, more important than serving in the temple, more important than circumcising your child, more important even than, 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 than reading the law, more important than everything. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And I look at this and I see responsibilities. Jesus, I know like you're supposed to be number one and like not just like, you know, sort of in theory, but I'm supposed to give you time and attention and listen to your voice and follow it no matter what. But like, man, I got some things I got to do. I got family responsibilities. I got fiscal responsibilities. I got social responsibilities. Come on, man, you understand, right? And I look at Jesus probably more often than I'd like to admit and say, you understand, right? And just assume he's like, oh, yeah, I get it, buddy. When really he's like, let the dead bury the dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's pretty clear. He's not interested in waiting. 
Third one that we see, I think, is maybe the most uncomfortable, and that's that Jesus is greater than people, even important people. Take a look again. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Seems reasonable. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. As a husband and a father, I kind of find this offensive, if I could be perfectly honest with you. Like, it's all good if you call me to this, but you call my son or my daughter to this, you better come let him say goodbye to me. And like, I can think my way through it. It's fine if it was really Jesus, but if anybody other than Jesus made this kind of request, somebody in my family, no way, no way. And this whole Jesus is greater than people thing is tough. Always been tough, maybe especially tough now. There's a number of different examples of this I've seen recently. Uh, Let me just pick a couple of them. One, I was... um, I don't know why, but I got on Twitter the other day and uh, immediately was like, why did I do this? And somebody was tweeting, this person was tweeting about how, you know, every, he, he wanted to make the point that you Christians think what's important is what we believe about Jesus. It's not about what you believe, it's just about being nice to people. And he said, or being kind to people, right? He said, every time somebody came up to Jesus, he didn't point them to himself, he pointed them to take care of other people. And I'm thinking, like, not this time, like sometimes, but here in this case, nope. He's pretty clear. you got to love me more than anyone, more than all those other people. I also think maybe some of y'all aren't on Twitter, so you're like, that's ah, not my thing. You all celebrated Christmas, though, and you all said or heard something like this. You know what the holidays are all about? Spending time with family. You know what I like to do during the holidays? Spend time with my family. But you know what the holidays are not all about? Spending time with family. You know what Christmas isn't a celebration of? My wife, children, parents, in-laws, and siblings. Nope. <laughs> Sure, fine. I, I, I think Jesus loves family, right? Like he pushes us toward him and all that kind of stuff. But first he says, I come first. And we've turned something that's designed to draw attention to him and made it something that's designed to draw attention to the people around us. And you flip the order and you get it wrong and you find yourself on the wrong side of this text. Now for some of us, it's this general love for humanity. Maybe not. Maybe you don't like people and you're like, this is easy for me. <laughs> but for, for a lot of us today... Like the idea of loving people is concrete, you know, but loving Jesus, it's a little bit more slippery. For most of us, it's one or two people. No offense, I love you guys, but it's not hard for me to love Jesus more than you. It's hard for me, it's sometimes hard for me to actually put Jesus above the needs of my, of my three, my wife and my two kiddos. It's just hard, I'll just admit, it's hard. Jesus says to me, you gotta love me more, you gotta hate them in comparison to me. What, are you for real? And Jesus says, yes, I'm for real. So who is it for you that Jesus says, I gotta be greater than your commitment to them? Who would you pick over Jesus? That, that's what he's calling you to give up. We like to say, oh, Jesus isn't calling me to give up the things he's calling them to give up. Cool, but he's calling you to give up something. Even if only in here and here. Calling you to give up something. So maybe you hear these things and you think, why does Jesus get to do this? Like, who does he think he is, you know? And I think that's a great question for the record. Maybe there are people around you who are like, you're not supposed to ask that question. He's Jesus. Say it with me, Jesus. That's all you need to know, you know. No, that's not enough for me, man. It's not enough because I think that this is a question the text wants us to ask. Who does this person think he is? It's all over. It's just right beneath the surface of this text. I know this is going to kind of seem like it comes out of left field. Luke is narrating these events in a way that draws attention to the relationship between Jesus and Elijah. Not Elijah Daly with the hair and the beard and the guitar, but the prophet Elijah. 
If you're fairly new to the Bible, there's this guy in the Old Testament, first part of the Bible. He's probably top five who's who in the Old Testament. He's one of the sort of heroes of the faith. He was a prophet. He was the prophet. He was the person that God sent to the world to tell the truth, and he would tell the truth to anyone every time. And there's a story in Elijah's life that I think looks a lot like this one in Jesus' life. Let me read it to you. If you're a fast turner, you can flip over to 1 Kings 19. If not, let me just read it for you. You can write down the reference now and read it a bit later. This is Elijah interacting with a young man named Elisha. I know it's confusing, different people. Here's what happened. So Elijah, 1 Kings 19.19. That's where I'm at, 1 Kings 19.19. Reading through just 21. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. This would be a cultural way of saying, I want you to be my disciple. Come follow me, and I'll teach you how to be a prophet like me. So he throws his cloak around him. Verse 20, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. He said, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Oh, go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back to his family. He took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. You see the connection? That's not actually a connection. Like it is, but it's not. Jesus is like Elijah, but not. Elijah says, you got to follow me, but you're going to have to leave your family. But yes, of course you can go say goodbye. Jesus says, follow me now. And it's because Elijah and Jesus are not on the same level. Jesus is actually greater than Elijah. Elijah is a servant of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Elijah is a prophet who brings the truth of God. Jesus is the truth of God in human form. And the reason why Jesus can make the demands that he makes in this is because he's Jesus. And I know it feels like this is cheating a bit, but it's because he's God. Like he made you. He holds together the fibers of your being every moment of every day. He designed you. He died to save you. And he will one day judge you. Like he is God in human form. That's why he gets to do this. You can reject him if you want to. That is your, your call. Like he gives you that freedom. But don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is just like a 21st century moral teacher who's telling us to go around and be nice to each other. Not like he wants us to be kind, for sure. But he demands, first of all, a radical commitment that is uncomfortable and even offensive. And it's a commitment to him. A commitment that only makes sense because of who he is. But that just raises another question, I guess. So, okay, he's God in the flesh. Why he got to be like this, you know? Why does God in the flesh have to be so harsh and intense? Why can't he be a little softer? Like, where's the Mary Poppins spoonful of sugar? You know what I'm saying? He just has a spoonful of homelessness. And did you just say that to a person who lost his father? Like, what in the world? Like, why does he do it like this? And I don't want to explain away this text. I don't want to, I don't think Jesus has to answer to us. So I want to be very careful that I don't make it sound like Jesus has to answer to us. But I do think it's a fine question to ask. And I think Luke wants us to understand, and Jesus wants us to understand, that he has good reasons for doing what he's doing. I don't think he's just being mean. I think this is the only way. He, he's calling you to this kind of commitment because he has to, because this is the only way it's going to work. Sort of like if you said, I want to learn calculus. Cool, first you've got to know what one plus one is. And you can't skip over that step. It won't work. This is the hand of the plow metaphor. 
Yeah, I'm not a farmer, so I have, to have other people explain these things to me, but like, I get it. It's like mowing the lawn. If you mow a straight line, then you gotta pay attention to where the wheel was so that you can make another straight line. If you plow a field and your hand's on the thing and you look back, you're not gonna stay straight. You're gonna start going all over the place. That's Jesus' point. It only works if you keep your eyes focused on me and keep me first. I remember, <laughs> I don't know if he's in the room, but my youth minister growing up is a man named Jason. He goes to this church. He's uh, now a good friend, and I'm still so grateful for his voice in my life. He's preached here before, and if you remember, he's really intense. Usually has a beard, really intense look on his face, yells a lot, always been that way. And I remember in high school, I had heard a call on my life to go into ministry, be a pastor, be a preacher. And uh, so Jason was sort of, he was my mentor. He was kind of leading me through this. He knew what God was calling me to do. And I remember I came into his office one day, and he's kind of typing away, and I was doing some stuff. And I said, hey, I think I'm going to get a business degree, too. And he's like, oh, okay, why? And I was like, well, I mean, you know, just so that I have something to fall back on in case ministry doesn't work out. And he stopped typing. And then he turned to me. And he just looked at me with those scary eyes, and he just went off for like 45 minutes, right? Like he's just, the volume level is high. The intensity level is high. I'm like almost in tears, right? He's, and what he's saying makes sense. He's, he's saying, listen, if you'd have told me that you wanted to get a business degree because it was a personal goal, awesome. If you'd have told me you wanted to get a business degree so that you could have an opportunity to serve God, you felt like maybe he was calling you to serve God in this fashion, great. But if you do it so that you'll have something to fall back on, then that's exactly what's going to happen. You'll fall back because ministry is hard. And he just kept going and going and going. And I love that conversation. And understand what he's saying. He's not saying ministry is like harder than another calling. He just knew it was my calling and I was trying to avoid it. And he was making it very clear that if I don't make the decision now to be all in, then it's not going to work. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's saying. If you're not 150% in, you're gonna quit. Probably not outwardly. Probably you'll still come to church, maybe sing a song here and there, maybe give a little bit. But at the core, is not a person who is sold out. It's not a person who's any more interested in further faithfulness to Jesus. It's not a person who is looking at him saying, I really will go wherever you tell me, even if it costs me everything. And Jesus says, okay, let's just call it like it is and not waste anybody's time. Why does Jesus get to say what he says? Well, because he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. And why does he say it the way he does? Because he doesn't want to waste your time. Because what he wants to do is nothing less than revolutionize the world by revolutionizing you. And that'll never work unless he sits alone at the top of your heart with no competition. Luke, in this uh, gospel of his, is just now starting a section here in chapter 9. And the next section is going to be all about discipleship, following Jesus. And in this section, there are three crowds of people. There's the opponents of Jesus, there's the crowds, and then there's the disciples. The opponents, of course, are those that are against him. The crowds are just sort of checking it out, keeping their distance. And the disciples are those who step in and follow him with everything. When I look at a room like this, myself included, I don't have a lot of fear that most of us are going to end up in the opponent group. Maybe I'm giving us too much credit, but I don't think that's very likely. My fear, though, is that many of us will hang out here in this crowds. We're, we're close enough to sort of get some of the dust, hear some of the words, see some of the sights. But like all in discipleship, I'm going to live my life however he wants in all the details. I'm not sure if that's for me. That's my fear. And I think about a news story I saw years ago about a new generation of vegetarians and uh, they were interviewing some of them, and there was this girl, she was in her late 20s, name was, I think her name was Christy, and they were asking her, like, so tell us about this new way of being vegetarian. And she's like, well, so I'm a vegetarian, but I really like bacon. 
And then this person's like, what did you say? She's like, yeah, so like, I mean, I'm a vegetarian most of the time, but like if there's bacon on the plate, then, you know, I'm in. And it's, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like that's like saying, well, I'm a Cardinals fan, but I root for the Cubs. Heresy. No, like it doesn't work. You can't do that. Like it's one or the other. And so the classic vegetarians had a problem with this. And so they made up a name for them. Maybe you've heard of this. This is maybe old news now. I don't know. They call themselves flexitarians. (laughs) We're vegetarians, but we're flexible about it. You know what I mean? We still like bacon or sausage or chicken, whatever. I don't know. Steak. And sometimes I fear that if we were perfectly honest with ourselves, we might describe ourselves as flexi-Christians. I don't know, flexi-disciples, flexi-followers. Like I follow Jesus when it's not too inconvenient. I follow Jesus so long as things stay comfortable. And I think Jesus in this, in this thing says, hey, 2018 is about to begin, so let's just make this clear. That ain't gonna work this year or any other year. That's what Jesus says. That's not how it flies. No. 2,000 years ago, Jesus called whoever came close to radical commitment. Today, same. Let's pray. Father God, would you please fill in the places that we can't, that we just don't even know like how necessarily to get where we sense you calling us to. If we're in the room, I think it's because we have some interest in your son and in following, following you, Jesus. So God, if you would do whatever you can to take our commitment and sharpen, strengthen, deepen it. If you gotta make us uncomfortable for a while, go for it and help us to think it through all the way, not just part way, but all the way. This is our request. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.